The Apostle Paul is urging upon every single one of us who know Christ, who are known of Christ, that we should have attitudes which can only be of Christ. When the truths of the gospel, which Paul has expounded in chapters 1 to 11, when they take hold of your life, when the Holy Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, when he moves and regenerates and transforms the heart and the mind and the life of a sinner, when that child of God gives himself, gives herself as a living sacrifice to God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, holy and acceptable to God in Christ, what does that Christian life look like? That's what Paul's addressing in these verses. So if you're a Christian, these verses are most definitely for you because these are the graces which God is reproducing in you. If you're not a Christian this evening, what I want you to do is, well, not what you may be tempted to do, and that's listen to what's being said and start judging all of us against it. <laughs> no, we, we Christians, we have to honestly judge and examine ourselves against all of this. We are still a very much a work in progress, very much so. Uh, the main road out of Liverpool on the north side of the city, as you drive out parallel to the docks, you go first down, it's called Great Howard Street to begin with, then it's Derby Road. It's got roadworks on it that have been going for over three years. Still not finished. Well, I've been a Christian for over 40 years, never mind three years, and I'm still not finished. That I know only too well. What I pray you will do this evening, if you're not a Christian, is to see the goodness that God brings into the lives of those who will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that it, it is God's doing. And these are the things which you'll only find in Christ. Those of us who are believers, we will only find these things in Christ. We can only do these things in Christ. And these things are received when we trust him for salvation. Well, this evening we're going to follow really the pattern of last week, which is simply to have this text open in front of us. Let me encourage you to have the text open in front of you. And let's simply allow the text as we read our way through it to point us to all of the things that we need to consider together this evening. Uh, not the usual uh, three-point sermon like we had this morning, uh, but uh, this, I think, serves our purpose well in this particular part of Romans. Well, let me remind you that in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, we have a kind of a, a broad brush manifesto for the Christian life. In verses 3 to 8, Paul then starts to turn up the magnification and considers some of the basic principles for our lives together within the body of Christ, his church. And then from verse 9, he draws our attention to individual graces, all of which are 
a particular kind of outworking of love which should be found in our lives. They need to be found and developed in all of us if we are to play an effective part within the body that God has put us in. And if we are to truly be living sacrifices to God. Last Sunday we got as far as verse 13, so we pick up at verse 14 in Romans 12. And it's at this point that Paul introduces a slight change of focus by reminding believers that this kind of loving and gracious behaviour is not to be limited only to other Christians. Love your enemies. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, the word bless in the Greek is the word from we get eulogy, which really means to speak well of someone. Speak well of those who persecute you. Pardon? That's what Paul says. And persecute means to pursue people in such a way that it causes them to flee from you. The way that Christians, Christians fled from Saul of Tarsus. Bless those who persecute you. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome, remember. Well, you might think we've got troubles and struggles today. Have you studied the Roman Empire? You will struggle to find many empires more cruel, more pagan, more hedonistic, and more immoral, even though they were, frustratingly, brilliant at many of the things they did. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. This same Rome will very soon be slaughtering Christians in the most horrific ways, for fun in their amphitheatres. This same, this is Rome whose emperor Nero, it is said, lit his garden at night by stringing up Christians, covering them in pitch and burning them alive. You think things are bad today? You have no real idea what persecution is, yet. Neither do I, not really. And to these Christians in Rome, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Talk about radical. Is Paul nuts? No. He's just like Christ. He's just like Christ. Who said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies Bless those who curse you. 
Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Why does he say that? Well, because this is how the Father's sons behave. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? asks Jesus. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? That's Matthew 5, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. The Christian life doesn't get more radical than this, does it? Bless those who persecute you. I'm struggling to recall seeing or hearing too much of this during lockdown as many Christians railed against governments across the world. We must be getting the wrong end of the stick here. This simply can't be right. You curse those who persecute you, don't you? You have your heart set dead against them, don't you? You, you stand up and protest against them to the death, don't you? Well, the instruction here is not forbidding you to disagree with those who persecute you, not at all. It's not forbidding you to state your disagreement with those who persecute you. But it is insisting that you bless them and do not react against them the way you might have done in your unconverted days. So what does this actually mean? What it means is that you should have a heart of grace towards them, not a heart filled with bile. You should be praying for them that they might come to know the blessings of God in their life, just like you have in yours. There should be no outbursts of anger against them. Nothing disrespectful should be said against them. No harboring of ill will and malice against them in your heart. That's the way of an unconverted heart. Not of yours in Christ. If you get to meet them or speak with them, you should show them every courtesy and deal with them with tenderness. You'll knock them for six. You'll heap coals upon their heads. You'll convict them. There's to be, in the Christian, a quiet, a calm, a serenity, grace, loving-kindness, prayerfulness. I was thinking about how to maybe example this. Uh, what does this actually look like? Well, maybe it looks like men such as Richard Wormbrand, who was a Christian pastor in communist Romania. Ciprian and Simona will be able to tell you stories of those dark days in Romania. Both their parents lived through that period for decades. 
Pastor Wormbrand was imprisoned and was tortured for his faith, as many were. What was his heart like in those years? Listen to some of the things that he said. These are all quotes from Richard Wormbrand. I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervour for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in our hearts. It must be understood, there are no nominal, half-hearted, lukewarm Christians in Russia or China. The price Christians pay is far too great. The next point to remember is that persecution has always produced a better Christian, a witnessing Christian, a soul-winning Christian. Communist persecution has backfired and produced serious, dedicated Christians, such as are rarely seen in free lands. Hmm, I think he may be right. These people cannot understand how anyone can be a Christian and not want to win every soul they meet. This is a, a persecuted man's experience of persecution and the effect it has upon the Lord's people. A communist officer told a Christian he was beating, I am almighty, as you suppose your God can be, and I can kill you. The Christian answered, the power is all on my side. I can love you while you torture me to death. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. Listen to this. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. That's what it looks like. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse because God is at work even there.
and grace is given, especially there. I think the Apostle Paul and men like Richard, Richard Wormbrand were cut from the same cloth, don't you? Do you have the same converted, spirit-filled heart so that you can be too? Number two, empathy with others, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. One of the marks of this sinful world is the envy and the resentment that can overwhelm you when you see other, thing, other people enjoying the things which you long to enjoy, but you've never had the opportunity to enjoy those things. You, you dwell on what they have that you don't have. And you can become more and more bitter and twisted as you think about the whole situation. Or when you are actually enduring some great trial, some great hardship, and so taken up with yourself and your own circumstances are you, people would be so uncaring and unkind to expect you to be able to rejoice over their joys while you are suffering like this. Now, I've got my suffering to deal with, thank you. The Christian is so renewed, so remade in Christ that all of those seemingly natural responses may be done away with in the Christian. To see others enjoying some wonderful blessing doesn't fill you with anger or resentment or bitterness. You rejoice with them over God's kindness to them. Who knows how long their joy may last? Who knows what pain and heartache might be awaiting them just round the corner in their time of rejoicing? Rejoice with them over God's goodness and kindness. Their time of weeping will surely come. And, and the sense here is the greatest expressions of, of sorrow and heartache. We might, we might use the word wailing. And those who shared a heartfelt rejoicing with them will be the same ones who probably are most able to embrace them in their weeping and weep with them and comfort them. I've been greatly exercised over these verses as I've been considering them through the week. These are searching exhortations. Just how deep, just how true, just how meaningful just how practical is our sharing and bearing with one another? This is what Paul is exhorting us over. Now, for sure, there are some in, in the church who are particularly gifted with these kinds of graces, and how thankful we are that that's the case. But there's no sense here that Paul is only trying to address the likes of them. This is for all of us to take on board. This is part of the reality of our being members of the body. 
there is to be this interconnection between us. Only the grace of God can produce this amongst a group of people who in the normal course of the world wouldn't have anything to do with one another. The gifts and graces of this supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit, it's all part of the evidence that we do truly belong to Christ. One preacher likens this to that time when Jesus was setting off to visit the house of Jairus and the woman with that chronic hemorrhage touched him. And, and Jesus turns around, doesn't he, to his disciples and he asks them the question, who touched me? And the disciples are kind of like, well, who hasn't touched you? The crowds are everywhere. But no, says Jesus, someone touched me. And of course, the point is this. He is touched for them. And that's what is to be in us. To be touched for one another, just as our Savior was. This is Christ in you. Trust me, this is much easier to stand and preach about than it is to do. But this is the exhortation that the Apostle brings to us. If we would be a living sacrifice to our God and Saviour. The third thing he exhorts in verse 16, impartiality. Be of the same mind toward one another. Now all of these qualities that Paul is mentioning do have an impact upon unity in the church for the good or for the bad. The next few phrases are particularly important for the maintaining of peace and harmony and a sense of unity within every local church. Now, in other places, the Apostle Paul will urge us to have the same mind as one another, that we should all have the mind of Christ, that we should all be in agreement in truth and doctrine. And of course, that is extremely important, but that is not the issue here. Because Paul does not say, have the same mind as one another. He says, have the same mind toward one another. And without exception. In other words, you should have the same mind toward everyone in the church. In other words, there is no partiality in you. There are no favourites you do not only ever talk to these, but never to them. You do not think better of these over here than you do of those over there. You look out for him or her, but this one just always passes you by. Not in the church, Paul is urging us here. These kinds of things ought not to be this way amongst the Lord's people. It's been said that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no, there's no steps or podiums or plinths upon which certain Christians are standing. It's a level ground at the foot of the cross. And your behaviour and mine towards fellow members of the church, it should be the same towards everyone. Be of the same mind toward one another. 
Paul urges us. Ah, but there's no advantage in me cozying up to them over there. They're not on my level, whatever you may think of that. They're not going to be able to reciprocate the kind of hospitality and favours that I do to them. I'd love to go to lunch in their house, but this one over here, that can't be in, in the hearts of the Lord's people, can it? Do you remember the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon? The letter arrived at Philemon's home in the hand of his runaway slave, Onesimus. But Onesimus had come under the sound of the gospel from the Apostle Paul when Paul was in prison. And Onesimus was converted. And he's returning to Philemon as a brother in Christ. Now, in New Testament days, that is, about, that is about as radical a change of relationship that you can imagine. He left a slave. He returns as a brother in Christ. Philemon. This is the whole point of the letter that Paul writes. Philemon, you must receive Onesimus just as you would receive me. just as you would receive me. Philemon, you must have the same mind towards us both, Paul is saying. Now, a healthy church will have a great diversity of people from every conceivable background, whether you measure that by nationality, by financial status, by educational background, by employment, by their family situation, by the postcode where they live. There will be huge diversity of all of these things in a healthy church. And there's no explanation for this group to be together other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, they now have the same mind toward one another, without exception. And for this to be the case, and for this to work, it requires, number four, equity. That's also in verse 16. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. It's a kind of an extension of this theme. Now, you'll no doubt have noticed that to some degree, there's often a bit of an overlap between these graces that Paul brings to us here. Often you think, well, it's almost impossible to exercise this grace without also embracing this one. And actually, it needs a bit of that one as well. They're not kind of isolated. and It's not like each grace is in its own little box, completely separated from all the others. Often they work together. For impartiality to work itself out, you'll have to give special attention to those who really are not naturally part of your scene. In the world, most people would love to have the opportunity to climb 
the social and economic ladder. Many never get such an opportunity, but if it was offered them, they would grasp it in a moment. People aren't looking down, they're looking up. They have no desire to reach down. They are looking for a hand up or a leg up or whatever you want to call it. Moving up in the world, that's the thing to do. No such thinking or attitude must be found in the church, says Paul. Now, certain aspects of moving up uh, may happen in your life, depending upon things like academic success or the career that you follow and so forth. But in the Christian, such moving up, if it exists at all, is to be incidental, not something you've actively set out to achieve. Because it's no longer about moving up as a Christian, it's about reaching out. That's what Paul's talking about here. There must be no evidence of high-minded thinking in the church. There's no place for a haughty heart in the church a heart that's, well, just rather pleased with itself in what you've attained and accomplished and achieved and acquired. But, oh dear, dear, oh dear, these over here, oh, that can't be in the heart of the Lord's people, can it? A condescending, disdainful, judgmental, perhaps even ridiculing spirit emerging from you as you look at this one over there, seemingly falling so far short of your precious view of yourself. No, 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 says Paul. There can't be any of that amongst the Lord's people. How can those kinds of things be avoided? Well, he continues in verse 16. And fifthly and finally for this evening, we need to be submissive and teachable. Do not be wise in your own opinion, especially your opinion of yourself. Be submissive, be teachable. Now there's a great need for all of us to be spiritually wise. There's a great need for those who are mature in the faith to pass on wise spiritual counsel to others. And primarily that takes the form of helping them to understand and apply the Word of God into their life. But the church has no need of the person who constantly wants to say, well, what I think is, because you're not to be wise in your own opinion. Someone who's getting in a huff all the time because no one will listen to what I have to say, and I've got so many good things to say. The kind of person who says, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. This person will frequently be frustrated because so many things are not being done the way they would do it. And their way of doing it is obviously so much better in their opinion. There's great danger that the, the kind of frustration that that broods will cause unrest and problems within the, the church family. Even in those in leadership need to take heed of this. I don't have a, a monopoly on wisdom. 
Christ has placed us in a body for a reason. I need all of you. All of you need me. All of you need one another. Because each of us are necessary members which make up the body. We all need to cultivate a, a submissive, teachable spirit. At the same time, it is true, of course, that we must not be so tolerant that we just sit back and let anything happen in the church and never say boo to a goose about anything. That can't be the case either. And so there is, there's a balance, isn't there, to try and get, to get right in all of these things. And there are these biblical essentials which, which must be maintained. That's one of the reasons why a church needs those who are recognised leaders in the church to help lead and direct in all of these considerations that we have to make all the time as local churches. But Paul here is, is exhorting each one of us to examine ourselves, see if we are in the faith, because this is what being in the faith looks like in practice. All of these verses that Paul brings to us here, this is how being in the faith behaves. This is how you'll make progress, improving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it's done, you see, not by focusing upon yourself, but by focusing upon Christ. Loving my enemies. Let me look to Christ's example. Oh yes, I was once his enemy and he died for me. Empathy with others. Here is one who sympathizes with me in all my weaknesses and temptations. For he has known them just as I have, even though he knew no sin. Impartiality. There are none of us here as believers who are loved more or loved less by Christ. He's known and loved and redeemed every single one of us. And the same degree of suffering and death was required for each one of us to be saved. Equity. They used to smear Christ's name for being the friend of sinners. Where would I be today if he had not been a friend to me? Submissive and teachable. Now, yes, Christ is the all-knowing and all-wise God. Yet as a man, he humbled himself under his Father's will in perfect obedience. He grew up learning the Scriptures, learning how to pray. Putting Christ in his proper place, in all of your thoughts and affections, will help to keep you in your proper place and me in mine. Put Christ in his proper place in all of your thoughts and affections and you will be that living sacrifice that he desires you to be.